Inside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught offside from a suburb of New York City in an apartment in Brooklyn. A bonus edition of the podcast this week. We are so excited about this. We'll get into some of the Champions League action uh, from Tuesday and Wednesday. But first, this is... This is an amazing treat. Three Premier League titles, seven FA Cups, three-time Premier League Manager of the Year. He just recently released a new book called Wenger, My Life Lessons in Red and White. Yes, the title gives it away. Arson Wenger on the program with us right now. Arson, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. And uh, you? We're very good, Arson. I, that's actually my first question. How, how have you been coping over this, these last few, these last nine months, really, of, of a global pandemic? How are you... How, how has your schedule changed? Are you still up at 5.30 every morning? Well, the first part was very quiet because football didn't play at all, you know. After when we started to play again, it became a little bit better. And uh, at the moment, uh, at FIFA, we are worried uh, a lot because we uh, feel many small clubs suffer, you know, and struggle to survive. Mm. And uh, overall... The turnover of global football in the world is 45 billion. And we think that 15 billion will be missed, you know. So that's, that's one third of the income of global football. And uh, that, of course, uh, is a huge threat uh, to many clubs. Yeah, I'm curious. This year, like you say, this has been just an unprecedentedly difficult year in all realms of life. You're talking about kind of that side of, of football. I'm wondering about the other side of it, you know, the long layoff, condensed schedule, no fans in stadiums. You know, you're, you're one of the great managers of all time. I wonder if you, do you think about, you know, if you were managing now, what would be some of the biggest challenges of, of navigating this? It looks, it, it, it looks that uh, the home advantage has gone, you know, the support uh, of the home team uh, has changed. Uh, the lack of support of the home teams has changed a little bit, uh, the atmosphere. And I believe as well that uh, there's a bit less passion in the games. And mm. uh, overall, uh, you could feel that the longer it lasts, the more you feel that when the team is not in a good day, you just have not that uh, resources, mental resources to bounce back and fight and just let it go. We have examples we see in uh, Liverpool lost seven at Villa, you know, uh, big teams who lose sometimes with big, big numbers. And uh, overall, I'm concerned as well that uh, uh, the audiences drop at the moment on television and that uh, will the supporters go back in numbers to the stadiums or will they take uh, bad habits and not uh, enjoy anymore to go to the stadiums when uh, this pandemic will be over? Well, we certainly hope that won't be the case. Arson, uh, I'm, I've just started reading your book and it's fascinating. And, and one thing that struck me in the early part of the book was where you describe your parents bistro and you describe the local town footballers in that bistro and the way they would act the way they would drink and how you observe them and I'm wondering as you were writing this memoir this remembrance of that time were you you suggest that this may help you in the future when assessing characters and players was there any particular dressing room you were thinking of when you wrote those lines uh, not really I just thought why, uh, you know, I, 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 uh, it's difficult for maybe for you to imagine that was a time where a different century, you know. So, uh, yeah, you could imagine that we never had lunch 
or dinner only with the parents. We're always people around, you know. So maybe I learned how to cope with social, socially and observe people. It was a kind of education, a psychological education to deal with people. And uh, so more than one specific dressing room, uh, I was a little bit in that case when I arrived in England because I was like a little boy, unknown, you know, like I, when you're a little child, you listen, you try to understand the world around you. But of course, I was already mature. But I had first, uh, when you go to a foreign country, you have to, to learn, to observe, to uh, try to understand how it works, how it works inside the club and uh, who, who is important in there. So you're a bit, I must, uh, just what I wanted to say, my education helped me certainly to cope with that. Yeah, I, I suppose that leads me, I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit there, but you know, when you went in, did this kind of education, the psychological education help you when you walked into the Arsenal dressing room? Um, more, more important, what was the first thing when you walked into Arsenal Football Club? that struck you, that you thought, I need to change? I wanted to change the way of training. I wanted to change the way of uh, approaching the performance. You know, I had a global approach of the performance. That means for me, the, the performance is linked with what uh, is on the pitch and off the pitch. And uh, on, off the pitch was a lot of work to do <laughs> because uh, that was a little bit a uh, special culture, you know. But overall, I must say, uh, when you arrive at the club, you have three months to create a culture of performance, you know. If you have not managed to do it in three months, forget it, you know. Really? Yes. That's why when I see uh, today, they say people, oh, you have to give them time, one, two, three years. That's all. Oh, excuse me, but that doesn't, that's not true. Wow. That's, incre that, that's incredible to me because that's a short period of time. And so you had to go in and dismantle the Arsenal, the Tuesday club, the drinking culture. I uh, no, I think at the time I was lucky as well because Tony Adams uh, uh, started to say I'm a reformed alcoholic. You know, I want to change my life and uh, fairness to him. He never uh, drank a drop of alcohol again. So I, I, I used as well that to uh, get the other place to help him to achieve it. You know, uh, so I we banned I banned absolutely every drop of. Uh, of alcohol and uh, overall I must say I arrived 1st of October 96 and uh, the English society became a little bit more health hygiene conscious you know and I arrived at the right moment the timing my timing was right okay uh, Wenger my life lessons in red and white is the book we'll continue uh, discussing some of that and I want to talk about um the 0304 side, because last season, Arsene, we saw Liverpool, they made a run at doing the thing that hadn't been done since your Invincibles did it. Uh, I'm just, I'm so curious about that team. How difficult was that task? And I'm curious too, when you genuinely believed it was something you guys could pull off? Well, I, I genuinely believed it uh, two years before. I wanted to do it, first of all, because I failed once in my life, I want the perfect season, you know? And uh, because you already think uh, maybe another manager could have done better, even if you win the championship, you know. So you want to be as close as possible to the maximum of your performance. And uh, the other interesting thing in that is that uh, you have sometimes to set high targets for a group to get them to do it. And if I had not set that target to them, they would never have done it. And uh, it shows that... Uh, 
we played one and a half years basically without losing a game. And uh, so that was as well, you discover other things that are absolutely marvelous. You, you lose the fear to lose a football game, you know, you just were to enjoy. And uh, you realize as well that the fear in top level sport is a huge handicap uh, to express your talent. And uh, these are kind of things that uh, uh, in, when you're in that position, you see as well that the players own the way to play, the way you want to play. They take care of it. They develop it as well amongst themselves. And that was uh, the marvelous things uh, that you discover is not only what you achieve, is what is linked with it, you know. That's interesting, Arsene. You say that they play with no fear, but... If I'm being truthful and honest, the, the Arsenal I remember prior to your arrival with George Graham was, you know, it was the boring, boring Arsenal, 1-0 to the Arsenal. There was a certain amount of um, emphasis put on defending maybe over other things to make sure once you had a lead, you didn't lose it. How, you know, I don't remember your Arsenal the same way at all. The 0-3-0-4 Arsenal played with so much freedom. Like day-to-day -day on the training field, how... How do, you, how do you create that culture of freedom? Well, I would say that's a little bit... Uh, I would say the, you, you have uh, an influence on the style of play, you know. The style of play reflects always the personality of a coach. It's a little bit like I give to 10 different people a, a, a receipt to cook, and in the end you will have 10 different meals, you know, if you give the same to everybody. So that means it's your touch the little thing you insist on in training, the way you encourage the players to do this or that, that makes, creates that, that, uh, that style of play. That was for me, I think, uh, when you're in a big club, you are responsible as well for the style of play of a team. And the big club need that ambition to give something special to the supporters. I've, I always thought, I don't want to cheat the guy who pays... Uh, uh, 50 pounds to watch a football game. When he wakes up in the morning, at least he needs to have a hope to see something special in the afternoon. <laughs> that, I think that's fair. But I suppose with your man management, uh, there's a quote at the beginning of the book, which I, I found very interesting. And there was one player who sprung to mind. It's from Andre Malraux. He says, to try to make men aware of the greatness they do not know they have in themselves. I immediately thought of Thierry Henry and what you did for his career. Is that, is that fair? Yes, uh, I, I think uh, in our job, you can influence uh, people's life. Thierry is one of them, but uh, the biggest part is down to himself. What, what, what I mean by that is that we all forget in daily life how good we are, you know? And that daily life is difficult. It's repetitive. It's boring sometimes. You have to do everyday things that you don't like to do. Mm. And it pulls you down slowly. So we people, the managers people, the people who are like you who write, they can help people to acknowledge or experience something that is beautiful. And that's why I believe that to get my job was to help people to discover what's inside them and how great they can be, you know. And in sport, it's even uh, easier than in any other activity. I'm curious about Thierry Henry, actually. You talking about him, was he, you know, you talk about the role of manager being a teacher. Was he a receptive student from day one? 
Yeah, Thierry was a Thierry Henry. First of all, was a very intelligent guy, you know, who had a, a perception of a game and the speed of perception of a game what was absolutely fantastic. After ten minutes, he knew that the right centre back had a weakness on his left or on his right, and he moved there where he didn't want him to move. So he 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 smells football, Thierry, and. Uh, as well, uh, let's not forget, he had a perfect body, a perfect technique, yeah. and a great pace and power. You know, he was a modern player. So it wasn't just a case of uh, Thierry Henry's playing on the right-hand side. He's, he's playing as a winger at Juventus. I'm going to play him centre-forward. It, it, was, it, was it was more than that. You told him... No, it, you... it's more than that, of course, because uh, uh, Thierry Henry was always a guy who was curious and analyzing and uh, you know the great players uh, have one thing they have a, a great great uh, analysis of the game they analyze well their performance in a very objective way and they're quite harsh with themselves you know and overall Thierry had that and he analyzed every time was not always easy but uh, with the distance he always uh, I think uh, was a pleasure to manage. He's a manager now. Uh, it, does he reach yeah. out to you from time to time uh, for some advice? No, it's a long time I didn't speak to him, you know, because he's now in a, on a different uh, continent. But I, uh, I uh, look at him and I think he had the first experience that was not well, but I'm sure on the longer term he will have a great career as a manager. Arsene Wenger joining us here on Caught Offside. Arsene, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the closing years uh, with the Gunners. Um, you know, I've always been curious if, if you believed the situation there could be salvaged right until the end, or was there a moment somewhere along the way where you started to doubt the direction that the club was headed? No, not really. You know, the club is in a, in a very strong position. I think uh, I pushed the club at the time to build the stadium and I uh, went to the end of my mission. I think I've given uh, uh, the biggest part of my life placing this club above me and, uh, and uh, being uh, happy to share the values and the beliefs I had uh, with the club. And when I left the club, I always felt that uh, when I left the club, they had a lot of money, that the stadium was basically paid and they had a, a team who was a decent team, you know. And uh, so overall, I think I left the club in a fantastic shape. And uh, I'm very proud of that. After that, I think uh, people have been a bit harsh to judge the last years. Because in 2016, we finished runner-up in the league, you know. It's four years ago. And uh, 2017, after 19 consecutive uh, times we qualified for the Champions League. For the first time, we didn't do it, but uh, we made 75 points. You can look in the history. It's the first time we didn't qualify with 75 points. And uh, we won the cup against the champion, who was Chelsea, and we, we knocked uh, City out in the semi-final. And the last year, everybody knew I was going. We still lost in the semi-final against Atletico Madrid in the Europa League. And... Uh, we lost in the League Cup final against uh, Man City. But the years were not uh, disastrous. People had enough, you know, but uh, 
uh, I think uh, these years are judged severely, and uh, you, you see that today. Um, there was a period, Arson, where it was after the 2006 Champions League final, and there seemed to be a new Arsenal emerging uh, under you. Young players, uh, Fabregas, for example, and I felt as if Arsenal were going to dominate, well, not dominate English football because it was quite difficult at the time, but that they were going to be, there was going to be a, a second or a third generation of team under Arsene Wenger. And that didn't happen because, well, why didn't that happen? Is it because of, of Manchester's... Look, look, it did happen, but uh, it was not as dominant as uh, the years before. Right. For two reasons. Is okay. that... Uh, I believe that uh, then you had Chelsea coming in with Abramovich, who spent. We had the restriction of money, right? And after you had Chelsea uh, and Man City coming in, who had all, all the needed resources. You look at the number of players that Man City bought from Arsenal. Right. You you see why. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, uh, on a longer period, the economical force takes over. Yes, um, and I, we, we were we were we were there, but uh, in the decisive moments, of course, we lacked a bit the uh, quality to win it. Arson, um, I, I, I get a sense from the book that um, you're not, and, and you would I would share this with you that you kind of bemoan the economics of the game. No, I think you came up with the term financial doping, and um, is is that's what's happened in English football, and that. Yes. Yes, and, and uh, they came in, you know, at the moment where the financial fair play did not exist, what people think. Today, these clubs are for the financial fair play because they do not want anybody else to come in to threaten their position. But uh, uh, that, at the time, they had no restrictions in their investments. And that's not the case anymore nowadays. That's why I believe they had, uh, they had compared to us, who had to, to pay uh, at the time, uh, 22 million back every year, uh, unfair advantage. Mm. Was there one player leaving that particularly hurt you in that period? Was it a Nasri, a Van Persie? Um... All of them hurt me because I, I, I made them all start, you know. Yeah. And uh, of course, the Fabregas, the Nasri, the Van Persie, the Adebayor, the Clichy, the Colo Touré, they all went, you know. So uh, we had always to reinvent ourselves and... Uh, and we managed to stay at the top because the mo at the end of the day, the most difficult at the top level is to be consistent. You know, when you have a special team, you win, but to be consistent uh, is the most difficult. I'm curious. You're talking about you know players coming and going, and it's kind of been in the news a little bit this week with actually one of your your fellow countrymen in Paul Pogba. His agent says Pogba's done. At United wants to be sold. Uh, it's kind of one of those situations, you know, JJ and I, we talk about this on, on the show a lot. How does a manager handle something like this? You have fans who get angry with that player and say they don't want to see him anymore. But by the same token, you know, we saw Paul Pogba score for Manchester United in the Champions League uh, after this all happened earlier this week. How does a manager handle this kind of situation when a star player has openly said, I don't want to be here anymore? Look, uh, I believe that uh, you have to explain to the player that no matter what his future plan is, his interest and his job is to perform at the present, you know. 
it's the best way to prepare your future is to play well in the present. And I, when I saw Pogba coming on on uh, Tuesday night, I think it was uh, at Leipzig, I, uh, I, I was uh, sorry that he didn't start the game because straight away, uh, when he came on, he made a, a huge impact. So personally, I believe that uh, no matter what, uh, when you're a performer, no matter in what kind of circumstances you play, in the big games you perform, you know. These are the guys, these guys have played the uh, Champions League, uh, World Cups, they won World Cups, they can perform when they're under pressure. Uh, that's why I, I believe no matter what the circumstances are, if you have a good communication with the player, you always need them in the big games. I was curious, you talk in the book about getting job offers from PSG, Juventus, Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, England, France. Were, were you ever close to leaving? Never. Never? No, because I went for that challenge and uh, I promised myself that uh, uh, I explained that in the book. I've gone for more money, more glory, maybe. But uh, I believe as well, uh, I wanted to guide the club through that uh, sensitive period. And I'm very proud today, as much uh, as the titles I won, uh, for having done that. Arsene, was there, was there a particular battle, psychological or footballing battle against a manager, say Mourinho or Ferguson, that you, that you enjoyed the most? I never experienced uh, the games like uh, me against uh, another manager. You know, it's a report of two teams. And uh, of course, uh, you had periods where we were fighting level to level and periods where uh, our teams we were inferior and uh, then of course you lose the game but I don't believe too much in that. Something else from the book that I found interesting you talk a little bit about Mesut Ozil um, yeah I, I think he kind of comes off to the fans as, as a bit of a complex figure I'm curious just what was your relationship like with him and was he difficult to manage? It was not difficult to manage, but to uh, answer the second question straight away. He was a guy who uh, had a special quality, you know, as a creative player and uh, needed uh, to have fun. He needs, he, he, he's an artist, you know, and these guys are a bit more sensitive and uh, they, need, they need support and environment that pushes them to give their best. And... Uh, Overall, I must say, uh, he is. A, you have two ways to see the football team, you know, or you get everybody to, to do the same, the same intensity of work, the same uh, uh, defensive work, or you find a compromise. You have a more creative player in the team who can do less defensive work, but you build a team around him who can compensate this, this, uh, this uh, uh, deficiencies. And uh, that's what you have to think about. And I believe uh, at the end of the day, in, in the States, you know that well. You know, you need a quarterback and a runner. Mm -hmm. You need somebody who gives the ball to somebody who puts the ball in the net, you know. And uh, sometimes uh, the price to pay is that you lose a little bit the defensive balance. Yeah, I think you'd said in the book something to the effect of that being hard on him doesn't necessarily work. So conversely, I'm so curious, who were the guys that you knew you could be hard on? Like if you needed to send a message uh, to the, the team first in generation training. I found, uh, you know, the first generation. I think I've been uh, 
uh, hard with some players in my decision sometimes and even not uh, not unjust but uh, he is what I wanted to say he needed support you know and that's where uh, as a manager you have to smell uh, you have to know you have to meet the other person that's what it is about manager you have to meet the guy who's facing you therefore you have to move out of yourself and try to understand who he really is and uh, so everybody's different. Ar Arsene, you had a, a knack for signing players who were unheralded before and then came in and had a huge impact, particularly on those early, earlier Wenger teams. Um, I I'm curious, I have a name in my head. Who, who would you think was your best signing? The signing that you're most proud of from whatever re for whatever think, reason? Uh, I'm proud of all of them, basically. Uh, not all of them, uh, because uh, success-wise, but mm. uh, I would say the one who gave me a credit first, because I came unknown, was Vieira. After, yes. of course, you had Anelka. After you had, uh, of course, uh, Thierry Henry. And uh, then you had, uh, what people forget, Overmars had a huge impact. Petit, you know, Colotouré. All these guys had uh, Lauren. So it, it is... Uh, and then we Sleeman after, you know, we, we had so many uh, top class people. I think uh, the team you speak about, they had the charisma. You know, they had not only, they refused to be average, you know. And then they walked in in the morning, they're showing you that just by the way they walk in in the morning, you know. Are, and, are, uh, sorry to cut across you, Arsene, are those characters gone in the game? The people with the charisma, are there less of those kind of players now? No, I don't say that. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I'm, uh, I've managed so many different generations and until my last day, I think any boy of 18 years old who is a football player or any, or any, any other activity, most of the time, people want to make something of their life. You know, they want all to be stars. They want all to be successful. And that has not changed. What has changed is the environment of these people. What has changed is the technology around these people. But deeply, everybody wants to make something of his life. And we are there to help them. The way we approach them is different today because we are more in a picture uh, culture than in a talking culture. But at the end of the day, it's just you have to find a way to help them to achieve something. Arsene, I'm sure you get this question uh, in every interview that you do. You probably get it every time you go to the grocery store, but uh, people are curious, would you consider coming back and managing again? I uh, would consider it because I miss it. But uh, this is well maybe a time in life where you have to say, okay, let's do something different. I try to share my passion today and to develop, uh, help the world to develop because I think there's a huge... Uh, gap between Europe and the rest of the world. And uh, at the moment, I am creating a research center here in uh, Zurich on uh, global football. And I make an inquiry in every single country in the world to see what is needed and how we can help them to develop football. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, Arsen, can you spend some time in Ireland? <laughs> yes, but you know that uh, you produce some great players in Ireland. For sure, but it, 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 we don't seem to be producing as many of them as we used to. And now with this new, uh, with Brexit and the new law that's coming in, it's going to be more difficult for our younger players to go the traditional route to English clubs. Yes, but we are considering that in, uh, at FIFA, 
and I uh, and I share uh, we share the opinion that inside the same country or inside the same kingdom, it should still be allowed for younger players under 18 to travel and to move to different clubs. So in in, uh, in the circ circumstances like Ireland, they should still be they will still be allowed by us to travel to England okay. under 18. That's interesting. Well, this was absolutely fascinating. What a pleasure. Wenger, My Life Lessons in Red and White. Uh, it's holiday season. Get this book. It's a fascinating glimpse into one of the, the greatest managers the game has ever seen. This has been just an awesome treat for us. Arsene Wenger, thank you so much. Have a happy holidays. Thank you. Thank you, Arsene. Bye-bye. Have a good Christmas. Take care. Oh, Arsene Wenger. There he goes. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. We're in our, I'm in my apartment. You're in your bedroom in, in, uh, in New York. And uh, Arson is trying to help global football, the inequities of global football in Zurich. <laughs> I know. And, and full disclosure to bring our listeners behind the, uh, the curtain. Um, you can always tell when some, like when it's just me and, and JJ doing the podcast together, you know, JJ, he, he's got, you know, boxes of tissues behind him. The house is a mess. <laughs> but you can always tell Porno when... mags, you know. <laughs> but you can always tell when, when somebody important is coming on. So today we logged on um, and I sudden, su suddenly behind JJ's left shoulder, a trophy has appeared. I said, oh, well, well what's that old thing suddenly just appearing behind you in the background? I mean, the, the lengths you go to to try to impress people, it, it, it's shameful, really. It's amazing to me that in my mind, I could impress Arsene Wenger with the uh, New York Gaelic Football Intermediate Championship 2020. You know, oh, oh, I've won cups too, Arsenal. What, this old thing? Like he was going to ask me. <laughs> right. Well, what's that trophy you've won there? Forget about it. No big deal. Yeah. I'll tell you one thing that I found very interesting that he, uh, he spoke about there when I asked him about the final years at the club and, you know, cause JJ, how many, it felt like, honestly, it was, it was over a course of years where you and I were doing this podcast mm -hmm. and we were saying, okay, is this, is this the end? You know, mm -hmm. just, it seemed like the trajectory was just not headed in the right direction. And it's, the viewpoint from which he sees it is interesting to me is that he believed that things were not dire in the way that many of the fans did. Now, I guess whether or not that's true, maybe you will have some fans now that look at where the club is and look at where they were then in those final years under Wenger and think, hmm, maybe things weren't actually uh, as bad as we once thought. But I don't know. I think that was, I thought that was just an interesting look at his mindset uh, in the final years of that job. It was. And it's interesting how much he gave, Managers don't like to make excuses or they don't like to be seen to make excuses. But he said, basically, they had the, the economic powerhouse of Chelsea and City. What was, it, what was the phrase he used? The economics just took over. You know, so I think he kind of maybe in those years had, had resigned himself to the fact that qualifying for the Champions League like 14 years in a row was, the, was unbelievable. And getting to the second round, even though, you know, there were great nights for Arsenal. Remember against Barcelona? Remember the Jack Wilshere game where he played? And, um, you know, he could continue to produce breathtaking football. But what had happened was it wasn't winning football anymore. And the economics got in the way. Um, I didn't do this. You know, you know, when you make a list of questions, especially for a big interview like Wenger, I had a list of questions and one of them was a from when I spoke to Liam Brady, which, who was the former head of his youth development. 
and Liam was in New York a couple of years ago, and I asked, no, Liam said rather, uh, an Arsenal fan asked a question, and the question basically was, you know, why, why are you so reluctant to get rid of Wenger? And Brady was, well, be careful what you wish for. You know, this club has been built in a certain pattern and a certain structure for so many years. And, and maybe now we're experiencing a little bit of, of the, new, the new problems that the, the new incumbents have, have faced because of, because of basically it's so hard to match what Wenger did. Yeah. Looking at Arsenal through the prism of Wenger is, and George Graham before him is, is kind of daunting, really. Yeah. And that was the other thing that you just talked about that was interesting to me also is that like we kind of just take you know the the Chelsea money situation the Manchester City money situation it's just such a part of the game now that we don't even really think about it but like you're right Wenger was was there among like amongst that turning point in soccer history and he's right like who knows they could have very well continued going on being the arsenal that they were in the early 2000s but he's manchester city was pillaging them right he could he listed them off i i you know it used to make me sad i i didn't again a word i decided not to use because it might be highly emotional but i was going to talk about betrayal did he feel betrayed about all these guys you know i i always had this this vision of wenger in a room with Van Persie or Nasri or Adebayor or Gail Clichy or Kulotore and just Wenger pleading with them, we're building something here, please stay. You know, like, and, um, and he seems to have a much more, well, look, that's just the way things work. That's the way money works kind of approach to things. Right. Um, but he did and, then, say, and then also too, though, like some of the players that I think that they invested in that they had maybe assumed would lead them into that next era. Like I think yeah. about like Theo Walcott, Jack Wilshire, players like that, 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 I, that they believe maybe even Aaron Ramsey to a certain extent. Andre Arshavin. Remember the yeah. scenes when Arshavin was signed. Right. Like it was, it was unbelievable. People congregating together outside of, was it London colony or, or outside the ground even. And, and he was introduced to them. And like, I mean, Arshavin has a nice highlights reel, but that didn't work out. I mean, the, that Liverpool game was, like, you probably remember it better than anyone. You that's know? about it, though. You know, there was no... Right, that, that's he, he the was, real. He, he was supposed to be the key signing. And they beat, they were supposed to beat in a number of top European clubs to get him. Right. You know, so, um, yeah, fascinating. The book, book is, the book is interesting. Um, yeah. Well, he's, he's clearly a very deep thinker in terms of just, you know, his philosophies on the game. That was kind of, uh, kind of why I was curious if, if he speaks with Thierry Henry about, yeah. you know, philosophies of management because you know, Henry is in his infancy really as a manager and, and I guess who better to learn from. Yeah. And I, I wonder also the, the big thing about Wenger was when he, Wenger is put in this triumvirate of managers, Mourinho, Wenger and Rafa Benitez, who did not have very good playing careers and uh, or didn't have high-profile playing careers. And so there was always their ability to see more globally, as Wenger said himself, and to, to understand players and understand the different levels they're at. We saw a Thierry Henry MLS video, which everyone was applauding. Love his passion, love everything, where he's mic'd up and shouting on the sideline. Most of his instructions to his players are like, why didn't you see that move? Why didn't you take it in turn? Pass, pass, pass. Why can't you do this? And there's, there's, uh, I didn't say it in the interview, obviously, but there's a whiff of Roy Keane off him. Like, can Thierry Henry understand players who don't see the game or analyze the game in the way that he, he does? 
that's very yes. that's a that's a thing Roy Keane has yet to be able to do in his managerial career. It is true. I sometimes think about that across all sports, like the the difficulty of the greatest players making great coaches. Right. Because there's so many things that just come instinctively to them that it's like it's hard to coach that into someone else who just doesn't have that gene. Yeah. For like, I mean, <laughs> look at the look at the great NFL players. And then look at coaches. Coaches are, are they're guys who are analytical. They're nerdy guys who pour over positions, work their way up, and, and they have this global approach to football. Like McVeigh. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, look where he started, and he just imbibed everything. McVeigh is like a modern, uh, an NFL kind of Wenger. No, no playing career to speak of. Is Tom Brady going to come out and be an amazing coach? Maybe, but I, you can't be sure. Right. Typically, it's the guys who, like you said, they're either, you know, come up through the coaching ranks and never really had a playing career or they're like mediocre to maybe good players who had to rely on everything to succeed. Like, you know, they had to get the most out of whatever they had physically, but they had to be cerebral like they, you know, they couldn't be these guys like Michael Jordan just kind of like it was just so innate in him to do the, what he was going to do. Like, it's just, it's how instinct. You, how do you coach those things? Right. It's, it, you can't. You, you just have to be able to draft and select the best skilled players to try and fit into a certain system. By the way, Nagelsmann and McVeigh and Sean McVeigh is, mm. is the there correct one. That's there you the go. right one. Um, but yeah, that was, that was fascinating. Really, really enjoyed uh, getting a chance to speak with him. Wow. Wenger, my life lessons in red and white. Like I said, it's holiday time, people. So Arsenal fans who are listening, it's, I would say it's probably a must-have. You really, it would almost be shameful for that not to be in your bookcase, this man's it's also, autobiography. It's, it's, not, it's nice to indulge in nostalgia when things aren't going so well. <laughs> I suppose that's true. Uh, I'll tell you what, let's take a quick break. I mean, th- this podcast, obviously, we're doing a bonus podcast because we had this opportunity to speak with Arsene Wenger, but a lot has happened since we did our last one, which was only on Monday or Tuesday, um, Champions League has, things. Right, Champions League action that really needs to be discussed. Uh, so we'll take a very quick break, and when we come back, we will do just that. Our thanks again to Arsene Wenger. More to come, though. Don't go anywhere. Oh, back now. A beautiful day here. Um, I assume it's the same for you in, in Brooklyn, JJ. We're probably only about 30 miles or so apart. It's just... Just gorgeous out. Yeah, yeah. The sun is on your face yet again. Uh, we mm-hmm. had an email from a listener. Uh, you'll ha- you'll know the reference. I don't watch the American Office. It's not as good as the UK Office, but um, he How said. Can you say that though by in the same sentence saying I don't watch it, but it's not as good. Well, watch well, it. I've co- I've come to that conclusion. Uh, but but he said uh, because we've been talking about the sun in your face before. He said uh, it reminded him of the scene. Stop talking about the sun. So that's a <laughs> uh, reference. By the way, one other uh, Wenger note that it's on my mind before I, I didn't want to forget it. Uh, you know, hearing him talk about Mesut Ozil and like the words that he's using, you know, he's an artist, he's mm. sensitive, he needs to be managed differently. Um, I wonder, I wonder if you'll get this, but there is currently a basketball player that I feel, I feel like they're the same person, Ozil and this player, like the way that they're described, their talents, uh, how good they can be, but how maddening they can also be. Kyrie. Right? Yeah. They're the same guy, yeah. Ozil and Kyrie Irving. It's incredible. Like even uh, Kevin Durant talks about Kyrie. I think Durant has literally used the word artist in how he talks about how you have to deal with Kyrie Irving. But Like they can be moody. Like it's The game's always been full of, full of those kind of players. And they're the difference makers. 
And again, not saying it would have changed the result, but a bit, maybe a bit of artistry. That's interesting, by the way. So, so we had a, so when I said Ozil should have come on at the weekend in the North London Derby against Spurs to give them something, any bit of creativity, straight away, the, the, and it's amazing how, how the mind is conditioned. An Arsenal fan tweets at us, yeah, but he's not going to do the covering back. He's not going to do the, the work in transition. No. Okay, no, we he's not. <laughs> but you heard what Wenger says. Wenger says you sacrifice a little bit to have these kind of players on the field, right. to have a Bergkamp or an Ozil. Ah, I'm sorry you didn't get to talk about Bergkamp. Mm. That would have been... Regrets, regrets. Anyway. Uh, yeah, uh, anyway, like you say, the Champions League. So, oof, when we, when we left you on Tuesday morning, <laughs> you know, we were looking ahead a little bit to Manchester United and Leipzig. And look, obviously it was, not, it was hardly a given. I, I don't mean to imply that United were any kind of favorite, but I don't know if we expected the game to go the way that it did, where they were down 2-0 so quickly, 3-0 at one point before they did eventually fight back. And bang, they are... They are out into the Europa League. Now, a couple initial thoughts strike me when I say that sentence. Um, Manchester United fans, you're not going to want to hear this. You're going to be annoyed with me. Thursday that's, night, that's, Channel 5. That's, that's okay. You, you can be annoyed with me. I can take it. Uh, let's be honest. Like When you look at this Manchester United club, it kind of feels like they, they are probably better suited to be in the Europa League. Like this... They don't feel oh, like a team good oh, enough and, to be playing in the Champions League knockout stage. And, and, Andrew, I've got, I've got to pull you back on that one. How? Uh, that, that, you may be correct to a sense, but first of all, this is Manchester United Football Club. They are supposed to be in the knockout stages of the Champions take, League. Take the jerseys off of these players and put on no. some random generic kit, okay? No. This is not a team well, that you would think would be in the round of 16 of a Champions League. They're, not, they're just not there. Me. Allow me to put on the sweaty, unlaundered jerseys that they wore when they hammered Leipzig at home and when they beat PSG away. That, that, that's the point. Don't look at it in any other context other than the group, right? Look how that group started out. Then look at the absolute joke that occurred when they lost to Besiktas in, in Istanbul with one of the comedy defensive goals of all time. Look how they played last night in a game where they needed a point. They went exactly for that point, played some kind of mad formation with five at the back that left one of the more dangerous players for RB Leipzig, Angelino, to run riot down the left-hand side. And they're 2-0 down after, what, 20 minutes? Like, let's just look at that. You are probably right. In the way, in the way that they've been, you know, their erratic form, Maybe they're better suited to the Europa League because maybe they have a better chance of winning it. But let's just look at, look at the group they were in. Andrew, look at the optimism at the start of that. They expected to get out. We were talking about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer on the podcast. Manchester United uh, listeners were tweeting us and saying, guys, you're too harsh. We're a point away from qualification in the Champions League. We're only a few points off the top in the Premier League. Things are going well. No, they're not. They're not going well. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has this ability to get results in big games, to, to pull himself back from the precipice, to pull himself back in the base jump, to pull the ripcord. But there's no consistency to his, either his formations or what he's trying to do. Actually, what is he trying to do? Who sends a team out there where Wan-Bissaka doesn't know that Angelino is going to be tearing down that wing? Like, when you see what Leipzig did to them early on. Now, albeit, Pogba coming on in the second half did help definitely did help he played some 
some fabulous passes that make you think, oh, go on, stay another few seasons. <laughs> Please. Any but score? at the same, but yeah, right. But he played one pass. That, it was kind of a no look around the corner pass. I, I, I'm still thinking about it. But United did get back into the game, but it was too late at that point. Well, it almost wasn't. I mean, look, the, the third goal in particular for Leipzig, it felt like a brutal blow because. What's Maguire doing? Well, that, oh. I mean, there, clearly, whatever the deflection was, I guess, at Angelino's ball in, it, it took a slight deflection, and it was maybe that was just enough to kind of confuse Maguire and De Gea. You know, De Gea maybe thinking Maguire would handle it, Maguire thinking De Gea will come out and get this. I don't know. They both looked like they kind of stuttered, and that was just enough uh, to allow Clivert to pounce on it. He reacted quicker than any of them did. Um, but it just felt so brutal because what happened like a minute earlier? Who was it? Bruno Fernandez. Uh, he hit the ball off the crossbar. Right. I mean, but again, again, it's no game plan, Andrew, to, to be relying on Bruno Fernandez to pull them out the fire to set to create record-setting amounts of chances. It's, it, that's not a plan. This 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 is a man, manager floundering. Um, doesn't know what is what is uh, what he's trying to do. Really, I I can't see a pattern of play. I don't know what their 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 game plan is. And surely at this point he would have one. And they've blown an amazing start in the Champions League. I mean, someone tweeted this. I can't answer it. Maybe our listeners can. When's the last time a team that you battered 5-0 or whatever it was when they beat Leipzig 4-0? It was 5. It was 5. 5-0. When's the last time you beat a team 5-0 and they're the team that knocks you out of the group stage in the final game? But, yeah, I don't know... I'd almost want to go back and rewatch that game because I don't know how that happened. Well, a lot of the goals came late. Um, there was just some mad defending by Leipzig. They, they opened up the red carpet and, and let Rashford at all stroll through a couple of times. But you have to, you know, United still won the game. They had set themselves in a position to qualify and they can't get a point or a win or not get beaten in Besiktasir. Mm. Come on. It's yeah. bad. It's very bad right now. And look, I'll, I'll give them a little bit of credit for one thing. When they went down 3-0, uh, you know, that could have been the, the moment of demoralization right. that really opened the floodgates and, and Leipzig could have gone on and won that 4-5-6-0 themselves. And the opposite happened. United, they, they, they did show that they are going to play either for themselves, for the jersey, or for this manager until the very last kick of the ball. They got the two goals back, including a player in Pogba, who United fans were saying a few days ago they hope never puts on the jersey again. He scored that Pogba goal. Nearly, Pogba nearly got the equalizer. He nearly ended, Remember, he got the ball on the right-hand side, and he drilled that cross in that the Leipzig keeper just somehow managed to... It was what I was going to bring up, is that after Pogba scored the second, you knew, okay, there was, with stoppage time, we'd have roughly 11 minutes or so to go. You knew that there would be more, at least one more moment of terror for Leipzig to have to deal with. And it occurred basically in the last 45 seconds of stoppage time when Pogba plays in that ball. And, I mean, you say Pogba nearly got the goal. It clearly would have been an own goal. uh, But it, it was a brilliant ball that he played in into a dangerous spot. And it's kind of just like an act of God that Gulashi just, stuck his leg out in the right spot and kept that from being a disastrous moment for Leipzig. But, so but, they really were that close and it was Pogba at the center of it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, exactly. But these are the minimum standards of professionalism. And I said it on the last podcast, I never expected them to come out and down tools. Like, cause, cause honestly, I don't know if, if, if he sanctioned what Mina Raiola said, I really, he, he can't yeah. have, I, I, I honestly, I'm going to Pogba 
going to give Pogba a pass on this. Interesting thing that came up from the UK from listening to a ton of podcasts over the last few hours and since United went out was the fact that the BT Sports panel or ex-players who would know, Manchester United players who would know Solskjaer or would have played with him, like they are not criticizing him. They're not even naming him in some cases. There was Owen Hargreaves, Rio Ferdinand, and I'm trying to think who the other one was, uh, Paul Scholes on the panel. The reluctance for Solskjaer to be gone after in the same way that Mourinho was in the media by pundits is definitely creating this kind of safety bubble or safety net for him. Or at least I feel that's well, the case. It, it is interesting because it's like there's just enough cover where you could potentially get away with doing that and have people maybe not think that you're, for lack of a better word, that you're biased. Because you, you can lean on how their transfer window yeah. wound up spiraling out of control and they didn't get and the, the guys board that they were and get. all and, and and Ed Woodward and all and structures, which are all key points. But Andrew and like players also like Harry Maguire is underperforming. Juan Basaka underperformed on the night. De Gea is clearly in decline. Like the players themselves have also like look, you don't have something like this happen because just one thing is wrong. You know, like there's, there's clearly a, a conglomeration of issues that have gone on there that have led to them going out and now going into the Europa League. So like, I suppose you could do it, but you're right. It's not the same treatment that they would give another manager of another club. No, it isn't. Um, and also, I'm just thinking of what Wenger said there. <laughs> he talks about culture and environment in three months. Where, where's that at Manchester United? In two years. Well, the, it's funny, though, because the first three months were probably when it went the best, right? right. That's when he came in and, and steadied the ship. I know, I know, I know. Look at the run of the results. Look at the teams. Yeah. And um, the other thing, too, that you start to wonder, okay, like, what are the things that will upset a board when analyzing their manager? And, you know, players underperforming, things like that. that that's one thing. But when it starts to hurt the wallet, Yes. Then you start to wonder, okay, well, that then it becomes a real tenuous situation. Financially, this is bad news for United. And I'm reading here now from the BBC. Uh, had United reached the quarterfinals of the Champions League, they would have earned themselves an additional, 20, uh, additional 21 million euros in prize money alone. Reaching the same phase of the Europa League will get them 3.1 million euros. These sums will actually be higher because of the distribution of the central market pool, but that only serves to widen the gap. Though the size of their state, uh, through the size of their stadium, United are suffering more than most from the continued absence of fans, currently in excess of 100 million pounds since the pandemic began. So missing out on this lucrative revenue stream hurts. Hmm. But the noises, uh, the Guardian, Reuters, I'm trying to think where else I read it, board, see progress. The board will continue to back this manager into the next two transfer window. Now things can change. We know that. Of course. That. Of course. But, I, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, again, it, it really comes down to what I'm seeing on the field, Andrew, for me. Is this manager, is his coaching taking hold? Can we see a definitive style of play? And I can't see it. And, and more than that, you're seeing mistakes. Um, it's bad. It's, it, it's bad. And United fans, I know they'll defend him. I know they will because he is a club legend. But at, at some point, 
and it probably won't be now. You're right. Um, at some point, he, he, the board will have to act. Yeah. Well, look, everyone gets fired eventually. Yeah. Look at the rigorous schedule they have now. The seven thousand games they'll have to play to win the Europa League. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. Um, also, before we get off of this, I know we mentioned him a little bit, but like we have to say at least something about Leipzig. Angelino was sensational in this game. And we talk all the time about the evolving role of the fullback. Uh, yes. and we, you know, we talk about Liverpool, um, but this guy is as good as anyone. And, you know, Manchester City had him and uh, now he's Leipzig's and uh, he's, is I mean, he he's not, as, as, a, he as not, a left back, he's their leading scorer. Is like, he it's not, incredible. Is he not still under contract with, with Manchester City? Is he not still part of the City football group conglomerate? I'd have to look. I think he might be, which is remarkable to me he's fantastic um 2015 or 20 2016 i believe i saw him live andrew really? um, when he was when he was a baseball player he, he played for the new york yankees Are you I gonna kid. say matt holiday i kid he was on loan at nycfc oh okay amongst now he's had it, quite a few loans psv i think as well girona um i thought you were gonna I'm, tell me he looked like matt holiday uh, the baseball <laughs> player because he kind of does I remember uh, NYCFC fans being excited hearing this guy is coming in from, from the city, from the city stable and then hating, not hating him, but it didn't work out. He certainly to me, didn't look like a guy that was going to go on and be one of the leading fullbacks in the game right now, but he's, he's blossomed under uh, Julian Nagelsmann um, and he's scoring goals as well. How well did he take that first goal? Fantastic finish. Yeah. It yeah, really was. It's amazing. Yeah. So congrats to Leipzig. They are through and Manchester United are out and into the Europa League. Uh, just a couple other things to mention before we get out. The, uh, the situation between PSG and uh, Istanbul, the sexier, was obviously a, an ugly one. Hmm. Um, the teams on Tuesday uh, deciding to walk off in solidarity after um, a, uh, I guess, a, a racist comment was made uh, that was was heard by both sides and uh, the game resumed yesterday PSG winning it no longer mattered the result of the game didn't matter PSG were through regardless um, but I think it's more about the the statement that was made uh, through this as opposed to what actually transpired with the match itself yeah the the solidarity showed by both teams in, in walking off was was good I think was good to see um, it's, it's hard for me sitting in, in, in uh, an apartment in Brooklyn without all the context needed to know for sure that what was said was meant to be an abuse, a racist, a racist term. Mm -hmm. um, there, is some, there is some debate over that. But I think what I came away with was that regardless of whether it was an intentionally racist barb or a comment you should not refer in that setting or maybe even in any setting maybe this is the conversation we need to have to anyone uh, using a, a descriptor of the color of their skin right like but especially though i think in a moment like that when when tempers are up got, you know people are heated and yeah. then for you to come out with that when things are already tense, you know, you can, it's easy to see how it could be, how, how somebody could hear that and take it a certain way. 
which is exactly what wound up happening. Yeah, and even, you know, taking it a certain way, or how about it's just not appropriate to mention someone or to describe or identify someone by the color of their skin. Right. You know, and now we've seen people push back against my very argument, like John Barnes saying it's it's a regular thing that we do to identify someone that in that manner, but I'm not sure it's appropriate anymore. And maybe we need that's the next conversation that we need to have. How do we how do we find a commonality of language that allows us to talk and refer to each other where we don't have to go to, well, the white guy sorry, excuse me, the black guy or to say things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, I think that you're right. There's so many different, like, you know, this is such an international game and there yeah. are so many different cultures and you know, I'm not trying to, I don't want to give anyone a pass here, but there, it is possible that certain cultures just don't, maybe that, that fourth official just didn't know any better. Well, I don't just know. Seen, and I think there needs to be like, they're just, we're at a point now where there just has to be a different level of education within the game as to what is and is not okay. Right. Um, and we saw the incident with, with Cavani and the, and the Instagram tweet. I mean, he's, the claim would be that's a local colloquialism in South America and that's okay. But it's not because you're using it in front of a global audience when you go on Instagram. And when you're a fourth official on the sideline, you're dealing with people who aren't from your culture. They're maybe not from R Romania. They don't know these, these cultural intricacies. Right. So don't say it. It's not appropriate. Yeah. This will be one where, because he's facing a potential 10-match uh, ban for this. Um, this is one where I, I truly do not know how this is going to be litigated. And I'm no, very curious. I'm very curious how this will go. Because right now, I, I, I honestly have no idea. I think supporters, like in a general sense, and, and people watching in can be heartened by, about, by Demba Ba and the leadership that was taken saying, something here isn't quite right and we're not going to play. You know, football has been waiting for this kind of moment. And um, maybe we look at this moment as the conversation. You know, conversations don't have to be just a back and forth verbally. They can be by direct action and saying, this is something that's unacceptable and we'll walk off. Maybe this is the conversation now. Maybe we'll have a new lexicon by the end of this where we, we can uh, find, like I said, that commonality of language that appears to be missing in this incident. But again, I don't know whether this was a racist incident or not, but it certainly, certainly offended people at the game. And that's important that their voices are listened to. Yeah. Uh, JJ also wanted to mention Barcelona. They lose 3-0 to Juventus. It comes at a, at a bad time for Barcelona, who, like we talked about on Tuesday's podcast, had just lost to Cadiz over the weekend. They're ninth in the table. Now, ultimately, this match didn't truly matter. They, don't, they wind up not winning the group. Um, I don't always know how big of a difference it makes to win the group or not win the group. Just get through. It's the first, it's the first time in how many years they haven't won the group? Quite, quite some time. So yeah. maybe it is significant. Maybe. I mean, they still do accumulate 15 points uh, through the group stage. So it's not, you know, like you can't, it's hard for me to say that this was an unsuccessful group stage Champions League appearance for Barcelona, even though they didn't win their group. I think, you know, five, five wins and a loss in a game that didn't really matter for them, I, I think says at least something about their intentions in this competition. But in the greater picture, when they're not playing well, 
Uh, like I said, they did not need this right now. And I think this game really, if nothing else, it really, really spoke to the reliance that they have on this one guy, Lionel Messi, who I think I saw, JJ, if you saw differently, you can correct me. But um, for the game, I believe Juventus had eight shots, four on target. Messi by himself, I think, had 11 shots, seven on target. And I think those seven shots on target were the only shots on target that Barcelona actually had. And it kind of like in watching that and in watching the way it played out, you know, Messi was to a certain extent, he was messy uh, throughout the course of this game. He did the things that you kind of expect from him. And on a different day, he might've, he might've had a hat trick, but I sometimes wonder if maybe it's actually in Barcelona's best interest that he didn't. So like they can't hide behind you know, had this been maybe 3-2 to Barcelona and Messi was unbelievable and everybody's feeling great today. Oh, our hero did it again. You know, they're loving him. You know, maybe it is important that they can look at this and say, you know, we can't, it, it can no longer be this way. This is now unsustainable. We cannot rely on this player to drag us through this competition. Yeah, and I don't know what that means. There's not a ton that they can really do to fix that right now, but it's just a message that I think needs to be hammered home. And they're trying to figure it out as well, uh, Andrew. Um, because we spoke to Graham Hunter in the summer and he said, he, I asked the question about, is the, are they ready for a post-Messi era? And they're not. So they're, they're trying to work this out. There's rumors that Messi will be gone in the summer anyway, so the rebuild will really take place then. Mm. Um, also, I don't, count, I, I, I don't count this game. This game was 1-0. Okay? I, <laughs> Why, because of the penalties? I didn't think either of those were penalties. I didn't. Yeah, they, they were soft. If it was the first or the second that felt the one in, I think it was the penalty that was in the first half. It felt, yeah. Both of them felt a little bit meh. Anyway, what did feel great was Quadrado standing one up for Weston McKinney, who just scissor kicks it to the back of the net, just busts the net with that. That was beautiful. Then he runs away, forgets he's in a pandemic and slobbers all over the camera. (laughs) Well, it wasn't at least, it wasn't a person's face. No, that's true. Come on. But uh, someone's got to wipe it. Yeah, so you get a paper towel and wipe I'm, it. Why, why are you doing this? Why yeah, do you have no, to ruin this moment? No, you allowed me to go down a road that was not a road of joy. It, it's, it was brilliant. It was such a moment. Rob Stone tweeted something that I could really, um, could really jive with where he said, uh, if that was, you know, if I was younger and this happened, that would be the poster on my wall. And yes. it's, a, it's a picture of Weston McKinney in full flight about to smash one home. It, it is an awesome, awesome moment. And uh, after a great weekend for U.S. players, that felt good too. Yeah, he, to see him do that in that uniform, in this competition, in that stadium against that team, like oh, yeah. just come on, like this, wow. The just, only thing that really, really got to you is like, he, as he's wheeling away, because it's such a spectacular goal, you're expecting to hear the <sighs> Now he wouldn't have heard that because he, they were playing at the new camp, but he would have heard, you would have heard the pocket of fans bursting away, the pocket of away Juventus fans. Um, before we get out of the Champions League. Well, hold on. There was one other thing I want to say about the McKinney goal. Oh. Um, allow me to remove my generic boxer briefs and put on my U.S. men's national team underpants for a moment. He scores that goal, JJ. Grotesque. <laughs> Am I... Am I overly biased to say that the outpouring of enthusiasm from other U.S. men's national team players just kind of like felt a little bit different to me than like, does that happen for among every national team? And I'm just not aware of it. Like everybody 
somebody posted a tweet that kind of like grouped together all of the tweets of other U.S. men's national team guys just like going crazy for him. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, this team, they love each other. Even Yunus Musa was one of the tweets on there who was just like going wild. I was like, oh, this, is, this for... team is so together. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if they do it to that extent. I'm not so sure. Uh, but then again, there's not many teams that are quite as young as this team in international football. Or that... like, when, like when Cristiano Ronaldo scores a great goal, like does Jao Felix go to Twitter and just like fawn over it? Mm, sometimes you see likes on Instagram or you'll say that was awesome King or whatever. Um, I think what's not notable is the way social media accounts are the U S men's national team one in particular, if a U.S. men's national team player has a good dinner, that gets tweeted about. <laughs> Here's our guy eating an awesome slice of pizza. You know, so they're super enthusiastic. But I just, know. I love, I, I, look, it is what it is. I, I'm obsessed with this group of players, with this I, team. And, and it that, kills I, me that they only play like, you know, three times a year. Anything that I see with uh, Eunice Musa being happy about a U.S. player doing something fills me with joy. Yeah. So. Uh, an expectation that he will declare fully for us. Yeah. Uh, before we get out, um, there was one other Champions League game that I did want to mention, uh, and it's Inter Milan failing to get out of the group stage. Once again, they finished bottom of the group, won't even be qualifying for the Europa League. And then after the match, I don't know if you saw, did you see the kind of like uncomfortable Antonio Conte was just like not, he was not ready to be talking to anybody. I didn't see that. No. So he, he kind of got into it with Fabio Capello after the game. Oh, because Capello's working for Sky Italia, right? Exactly. So oh, they okay. had, it was, it was a pretty frosty exchange between Capello and Conte. I'm re now I'm reading it here from <laughs> uh, sempreinter.com. Um, says, it seemed to me that Inter played to win, but without the necessary anger you need to have to win. Uh, you have been a player, you are a coach, and you know what I mean, said Capello, who was in the Sky Sport Italia studios, and how he began his discussion with Conte following the full-time whistle at San Siro. Conte then went on to respond to Capello's observation, saying, I have nothing to say. Capello, uh, who last managed in the Chinese Super League, then pressed Conte and quizzed him about whether or not he has a plan B for his interside. Don't you have a plan B to reverse situations? Capello oh. asked, to which Conte responded, yes, we have a plan B. Capello, who also had a stint in charge with the English national team, then went on to state, I haven't seen it. To which Conte said, we do have a plan B, but I won't talk about it here. Otherwise, that'll be a total disaster and that'll get neutralized too. Capello then went, uh, went on to attack the Inter manager for his comments by going on to add, but how can you say that Shakhtar changed their system? You have to study each opponent. It's the minimum you have to do. And if you have a plan B, you have to change it, but uh, have to change to it. But no, you are a train stuck in one track. And I haven't seen any plan B despite Conte's joke. Hello, just go, going Crushing in on this him. guy right in this like fragile moment for Conte. And then in the press conference, another manager, uh, another, I think a reporter asked Conte about his kind of refusal um, throughout this tournament to use the five substitutions at his disposal. And Conte, you know, kind of answered the question, but also at the same time said, maybe you should manage. <laughs> you know, I mean, he was just like, he was not so ready. So childish too. He, <laughs> Yeah. You go manage them then. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a journalist. Do it. Um, speaking of manager watch, that's an incredible exchange. Uh, I watched Salzburg, Jesse Marsh's Salzburg, lose 2-0 to Atletico Madrid in a game that was never 2-0. Salzburg were so good, Andrew. They opened up uh, 
Simeone's side so many times. And there was one moment where um, Salzburg just had this open goal after a brilliant interplay. And you're thinking, you're waiting for the net to burst. It's from six yards. And I can't remember who it was. Just dragged the ball wide. (laughs) And the camera pans to Jesse Marsh, who's just sat in the dugout with like angry stony face, if that's possible. I know stony face usually is expressionless. But it's like his eyes are burning with rage is what he's seen. He's doing an incredible job there. I, I, we really should watch Salzburg when they play teams. Yeah. They're very good. And they were 2-0 is such an unfair result. There were times when they passed Simeone's side off the park. They were that good. Um, now, I've had close-up interactions with Jesse Marsh before. And he does this thing. It's kind of um, polite anger. So he will be on the edge of his technical area and he'll remonstrate with the fourth official. And bef- just before he steps over the line and gets, you know, told, I-, I-, I can't say that, he will pull back in a very polite manner. And um, that hasn't changed at all uh, since, he's, since he's moved to Europe. But I was gutted for him because he's doing, he doing great work there. Uh, and look, I know Salzburg for a long time were part of a larger machine and, I understand all those things, but you still have to go out week in, week out and get the team playing. And he's definitely doing that. And it's a real shame. It's a real shame they didn't get a, a win. Not not a draw, a win against Athletic. True. Um, however, I would say it's good for them, though, that they will remain in Europe uh, as they, they finish third in the group. So they, they do drop down into, into the Europa League, which where I think they have a chance to to do some damage. It, should be, it could be a, still a fun European run for them uh, into the spring. For sure. One, one player who maybe they could have used yesterday, Brendan Aronson, was in action, just not for Salzburg, not yet. Uh, he was in action yesterday for the U.S. men uh, down in Florida in their friendly against El Salvador. And what I will say about it is this, J.J., if it was around like the 15th minute, you know, maybe you had had some, like, some chicken wings at the start of the match, maybe you felt a little rumbling in your stomach. You thought, oh, okay, let me just make a, a run to the bathroom here. And you get back like 10 minutes later, well, I feel terrible for you because you missed – everything from the 17th minute to the 27th minute five goals for this team not surprisingly that is the shortest span of time in which the U.S. has scored five goals in a game uh, ever and and by a pretty sizable margin you may remember actually last year uh, in June they scored five in 25 minutes against Trinidad in the what will forever be known in my house as the revenge game Um, (laughs) I don't know if it resonates quite to that level internationally (laughs) no 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 um but this, was, look, I, I suppose this was, you know, you can say, look, El Salvador was, they were defensively, they were so bad last night. Beyond uh, terrible. I, in rewatching the highlights, some of the goals, I'm just thinking, where are the defenders? Okay, there they are. Well, why aren't they moving? I mean, it was just the amount of time <laughs> and space that American players were given last night. It was, it was almost shocking. However, what I would say is like, okay, we can, we can say that. We can write this off to just it being a bad opponent. But the U.S. has played bad opponents before, and it's been 2-1. You know, it's been 1-0. Like, 6-0, this, this is exactly what you're supposed to do in those games. And it was encouraging that they did it, and it was encouraging to see the players who, who really shined in this performance. Look, defensively, there wasn't much asked of any of these guys, so it's, it's hard to judge, you know, Aaron Long or, or McKenzie, although McKenzie probably should have had a goal that was uh, chalked off. Um, but totally like, legit. but Chris Mueller, like, 
hello, welcome to the U.S. men's national team. That's the, the exact performance. Who doesn't love a great diving header on, on a great ball played in from Araujo? Like that was, that's a truly memorable night for him in his debut. Aronson, who I mentioned, getting a goal like, and playing well in attack. Um, I was glad to see Ayo uh, Akinola get a goal. Um, so this was, it was comprehensive. There's not a ton to say about it. It's exactly what you were hoping to see when you tuned in last Look, night. It, 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 just, it was a, a scrimmage game that happened to be televised. And it was good to get um, – because El Salvador, like you said, I love that way you said it. Oh, where's the El Salvador defense? Oh, there they are. Why aren't they moving? You know, th- that's my exact thought. So they, didn't, they clearly didn't want to be in Fort Lauderdale for the game. But key thing is getting guys together – getting them into the bear halter system, a brilliant night for Aronson to score for, for the national team, but also for Akinola. This is a guy we're trying to convince to get on and to, to, you know, to get on board with us. So perfect night for that to happen, but there is nothing else to say about. Well, there is one other thing. If we're Um, handing out, you know, we're talking a lot about Mueller, Akinola, the young players, Aronson. Um, There is one other player who is not quite as young that I think deserves praise, maybe above all else. And, to see Paul Ariola score a goal last night after the year yeah. he's had coming back from a torn ACL, he did get in right at the end of the year for DC United. Um, but to see him come right back into the national team and score uh, that had uh, look, say what you want about the opponent, the occasion, whatever that had to mean a lot to him. And, you know, for anybody aware of his road back, that was, that was a certainly a feel good moment last night. So I, I was, I was really, really happy above all else to see him, grab uh, a goal early in that one good for him man definitely yeah uh that's about it this was a this was a unexpectedly awesome thursday morning enjoyed this quite a bit my friend yeah oh absolutely and uh people if you can give this a retweet when i launch it on twitter just so everyone can hear the great arson wenger uh and and andrew i want to thank you for for what was tough wenger was a, a manager that inflicted many, many hurts and pains on your side, but you, you handled it like the complete pro that you are. So what did you exactly, what were you worried that was going to happen here? Today? I was very concerned because of your volatile nature that few of our listeners know about, that you were just going to, Wenger was going to join us. You were going to scream, screw you, Arsene, and then like run out of the room and leave me alone. So, so like my first question would have been, you know, Arsene Wenger, he has a book out. Uh, it's terrible. Um, <laughs> my first question for Arsene, uh, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> Who do you think you are? Just like yeah. scold him. Do you know the pain you've given me as a Spurs fan all these years? Do um, you even care? <laughs> uh, let's, that, that's about all I have. The la- one other thing, actually. Oh, my God. Me. It has nothing to do with soccer. Uh, I, it's just a quick assignment for our listeners and for you, JJ. So um, Don LaGreca from ESPN New York, he brought something to my attention yesterday or two days ago. Uh, a trailer for a movie. That's, it's called The Fat Man. Okay. And I'm, I'm wondering, A, if anybody else has heard of this and is aware of it, and B, is this actually a real thing? That's all I'm going to say about it. I want all of you right now, if you're still listening, to go to YouTube, just search the Fat Man trailer, and a movie trailer will come up, a movie featuring Mel Gibson. And it's so bizarre. It's, the idea for this movie is so insane. I, I simply, I've watched the trailer three times. I'm still not sure if this is, it looks like a professionally done movie trailer for a movie that's going to be coming out uh, or is out already. I don't know. 
but it's so crazy. I can't believe that it's actually real. And so I need our listeners. In, in moments like this, I call upon our listeners to, to do the work that I am either not able to do or, or just too lazy to do. Um, All right. So do, just do check it out. I'm so curious, man. What okay. you think of it? Text me after you watch it. I'm curious for your thoughts. All, All right. right. We'll, we'll do. All right. Well, hey, this was, this was awesome. Our thanks again to Arsene Wenger. Go out, buy that book, everybody. I'm serious. And I'm a Tottenham fan saying that. Um, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a really, really interesting look at this guy's philosophies. He's one of the all-time greats. And like I said, Arsenal fan, it's a must-have. Football fan, just, you should have it. You should just have this. Uh, so our thanks again to him. And my thanks to you. This was great stuff. I enjoyed it. To you, I say... Take it later, fun boy. See ya. Take care. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast.